Um, and I think if you have quite a small product line and a specific product line, that helps a lot. Um, it also helps with creating these sort of memory pathways between your consumer and your brand. So, you know, I hope that we're getting towards the point where if people think bedding and they think linen, then, you know, they might think of us. And by keep by staying specific, that really helps stay in people's minds. And, you know, we're competing with really big household names that have been on the high street for years, well, for generations. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a challenge to try and get people to remember who you are. And I think that that's, you know, specificity helps in that case. Welcome to the Lifestyle Edit podcast, a show about creative female entrepreneurs and the businesses they've built. I'm your host, Naomi Mbudu, the Lifestyle Edit founder, business strategist, and coach to creative female founders ready to scale their businesses with intention. Each week, I sit down with a guest to pull back the curtain on the strategies successful entrepreneurs are implementing to both scale their income and increase their impact. We are cutting out the fluff to give you weekly insights to uplevel your mindset and tap into your infinite potential to create a life and business you love on your own terms. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now let's begin. Jessica, welcome to the Lifestyle Edit podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I am really excited to have you on the show just because your business is just over a year and a half old. So I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of talk to you as you are doing so much of the work of getting this business off the ground, niching down on your customer, your product offering. Um, So I thought it'd be a really interesting insight into those kind of early years in a business. So thank you so much for being on the show today. So just to give people a little bit of context, can you talk to me about what you offer, who you serve, um, a little bit of context of how the business came to be? Absolutely. So um, like you mentioned, we're a year and a half old now. Um, We started the business super tiny with, uh, we had three different colors of duvet covers and we were selling in uh, two sizes. Um, And it was a little bit of an experiment. to see whether the market that we thought was there really was there. And what I was perceiving to be a a shift towards linen and away from kind of high thread count cotton, um, whether the market actually existed or not. Uh, So we started super small and just growed really gradually from there. And it was, uh, you know, it's been an interesting process and a a really exciting year and a half. Um, The business has grown a lot since launching Uh, we've expanded the product line a lot and we have a lot more colors and product items and we also uh, sell pajamas now as well which has surprised us by how big a part of the business that now is as well. So let's go back a little bit how were you testing to see whether there was a market there because I think we hear these terms a lot when we're kind of reading business articles and podcasts but then it becomes really hard to know how to implement that into practice so what were you looking at to to ascertain that? So for us I mean a big part of the reason why we were doing that was was to keep costs down at the beginning so we didn't order very much stock uh, right off the bat Um, And then it was a case, I mean, I kind of always had an idea that the business would center around uh, influencer marketing on Instagram, um, uh, Facebook, Google, Instagram, advertising, kind of all of these platforms. So we had enough of a product line to begin 
to start running campaigns and to start seeing what our customer acquisition cost was, uh, you know, how fast we could grow, what customer retention was, things like that. So kind of key metrics that you could test at a really, really early stage and with a really small product offering, which we believed and so far is proving to be the case, have stayed pretty consistent over the last year and a half as we've grown the business and built out the product offering. Um, but so, yeah, so it's sort of all centered at the beginning around social media and around what we were doing on Instagram and what we we're doing both paid and organically on social. But I guess what I'm, I'm kind of going even one step before that. So even just deciding that you were going to hone in on bedding, how did you know that that would have legs? Well, didn't really. Part I guess, it, yeah, that's a silly question. None of us <laughs> ever do. I mean, there was, um, I, I split my time quite a lot between London uh, and New York. Uh, there was a few um, interesting startups that were that were in the US looking specifically at bedding. So uh, specifically uh, Brooklinen and Parachute, both had huge success kind of in, in the cotton bedding industry. Um, they were both really, yeah, really looking at kind of hotel grade, high thread count cotton, real luxury bedding. Um, so just looking around really at the kind of interesting e-commerce startups, you get a feel for the kinds of things that people are quite keen to buy online. And for me, bedding made a lot of sense. It was, you know, it's a bulky item that is quite cumbersome to buy on the high street and makes a lot of sense to get delivered to your house. And yet there wasn't really that many e-commerce startups certainly not in Europe that were that were focusing on it it's so um, true because just even before we popped on I was thinking about brands other brands that have really niched down on a specific um, product category and right now there are so many think of like Warby Parker Casper yeah. Lola Quiet Town Quiet Town I did an interview with them all about a couple of years ago and they're just focused purely on um, shower curtains now they do like bath mats um, but have an incredible loyal following. So what is it about this kind of new trend for niching down on a specific s- sector that you feel like is really resonating with people? Yeah, I mean, all of the brands that you've mentioned are, are the brands that I'm obsessed with. <laughs> and and it's, so a lot of behind starting Piglet was also kind of looking at all of this and trying to think, okay, where where is there still a gap? You know, where is there an opportunity that hasn't yet been taken up by one of these brands? Um, I think you're right that there's a, there's a, there's a niche appeal um, and you don't want to, to expand too far out and, uh, you know, end up feeling like a kind of online department store. Um, people, it, it helps to be really specific in, 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 in your product offering and for people to know exactly what it is that you do and what, you, what it is that you sell. I think it, it helps in terms of your brand positioning, and I think all of these, all of the brands that you've mentioned, um, they really excel in having a really clear brand vision and identity. Um, and I think if you have quite a small product line and a specific product line, that helps a lot. Um, it also helps with creating these sort of memory pathways between your consumer and your brand. So, you know, I hope that we're getting towards the point where if people think bedding and they think linen, then, you know, they might think of us. And by keep by staying specific, that really helps stay in people's minds. And, you know, we're competing with really big household names that have been on the high street for years, well, for generations. Uh, so 
it's, you know, it's a challenge to try and get people to remember who you are. And I think that that's, you know, specificity helps in that case. So, so true. And it's a great segue actually onto the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because I have these conversations with my one-on-one clients all the time about the importance about niching down on your customer. And very often they're like, oh, you know, Naomi, I want, you know, at this stage, I just want to have customers. So they get really afraid of kind of saying, like putting that stake in the ground and saying that this is our core audience that we're kind of targeting. But it's so fundamentally important. So how did you kind of go about that? Because any, everybody needs bedding, let's face it. Um, but by talking to everybody, we all know that you're not talking to anybody. So how did you come up with your niche? And how did you kind of use that foundation to start mapping out how you're going to get the brand in front of them? Um, I actually think so. My opinion on this has changed a little bit over the course of the last year. I used to think, you know, that you had to think very narrowly about your customer base and know exactly who they are and be really clear and specific on that. And you, you mentioned Warby Parker earlier. I actually think that they're quite a good example of they have a they have a they have a certain look, they have an identity, but actually anybody could be Warby Parker's customer as you know, if you like their 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 aesthetic. Um, and I think that's been one of the things that they've really excelled at is that they've been able to scale so aggressively because they're not being too niche on their on their customer base. So for me, I think it's having a kind of broad outlook, but then also having a strong sense of your own identity. So with Piglet, I mean, it's it's not a very um, the look of the brand isn't super high polish. Uh, you know, it's not it's not. It's not luxury in the traditional sense. It's got a kind of scruffiness to it and an authenticity, I think. And a lot of uh, what we, you know, we imagine that, that that our customers are, you know, spending a lot of time in their beds and they're watching Netflix in their beds and they're not necessarily always making their bed perfectly, you know, first thing <laughs> in the morning. And, and that's kind of, so it's, it's a personality, but actually that's a personality that could be, it could be men, it could be women, it could be, people from you know anywhere in the country or from other countries it's 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 scalable in its in its approach because it's a personality that could be anywhere but can um, I can I quickly interrupt you there because that was a really interesting point um that you said about Warby Parker but with a brand like Warby Parker isn't it not that they knew who their core audience was that would be their early adopters yeah. Now that the early adopters are wearing it everywhere, then it goes into mainstream. But they were not courting mainstream initially. You see the yeah. same thing with companies like Glossier. It's not that they were mass straight away. They were targeting very specific people, very specific influencers. And that is what made it mainstream. The product itself is mainstream, but their marketing approach was not mainstream from the jump. I think you've you've put it perfectly. You've probably... <laughs> you've answered a lot of what's been kind of going around in my mind recently of trying to how to how to merge those two things you know to be to be mainstream enough to scale but then niche enough to have a strong identity and I think the way you put it is perfect it's I think right at the beginning to know yeah to know you know if you're looking at a whole range of different Instagram influencers for instance to to be able to land on somebody's page and know that they are the piglet influencer yeah uh, uh, so I mean it's it's fairly intuitive um 
I think one thing that helps with that, and I, I don't know exactly what the answer would be for a bigger brand who's got a whole load more stakeholders um, and kind of creative opinions in the mix. I think what helps with Piglet is that from a creative point of view, that all kind of sits with me. Um, so I can have a clear idea in my mind of, of what the look is. And then, you know, when it comes to collaborating with different people, you know, it's easy to share that, that, that vision and that, that aesthetic. Uh, I think the challenge comes when you start bringing more people on board and you need to, you need to translate that across a larger corporation. Yes, it's it's funny you say that because it's one of the challenges that I've been having um, in my business at the moment. For we have a very I call it our small but mighty team, um, but we're now going into our kind of next phase, and so we'll definitely need to bring on more people to support us. Um, so for such a long time in the beginning stages, I had everything in my head. You know, yeah. the way that we speak, the way that we respond to email. You know, just all of those kind of like brand identity stuff. And then now I have, you know, two people that just completely get it. So I just don't really have to explain that. But mm. as you scale your business, how do you create that consistency of voice and experience? It can't just be in our heads as the founders. One thing I find really helpful for that is I've realized that, I mean, Instagram is amazing. as an amazing marketing tool and kind of outreach tool, but it's also really helpful internally. It's a kind of constantly evolving mood board that you can always look back to. Yeah. And if you feel like, you know, you're looking at certain visuals and you wonder, hey, does this still fit with, with what we wanted the brand to be originally? You can kind of always revert back and see whether it fits in. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the same with the language and with the whole, uh, the whole personality of the brand. Because I think we were talking about this briefly before we started recording, but one of the fantastic things in the early stages of your business as you're still growing your customer base and your client base is that it's a lot easier to make your customers feel held. It's a lot easier to have that high touch experience. How have you been able to use that um, to kind of get feedback that then kind of funds the business's growth that you're kind of using your customers as part of that journey? So for us, I mean, customer service is absolutely the most important part of what we do. And it's actually not something I expected when I first started the business. I didn't realize how much of my time I would spend on it and also how much I would, how much it would matter and how much it would help us, you know, the, how much of a two-way kind of conversation it is and how valuable it is for us as well as to our customers. Um, I think, you know, those, those conversations happen on, on Instagram and on Facebook, but then a lot via so through our website um we've got facebook messenger as a as a kind of customer service plug-in on the website so people can just start a conversation directly in facebook messenger um and that's been really really helpful and we just end up having a lot of conversations kind of pre-sale uh just to talk to people about you know they're, they're trying to decide what color they want and they'll say oh you know what i really want what i'm really looking for is you know, some other color that we don't stock. And it, all of these things just start to kind of, you know, rack up and we start getting a real feel of what people are looking for. Um, same with sizing. You know, I didn't realize how much, how many people want square pillowcases, uh, come back kind of European square. I had no idea until people start, you know, you start having these chatty conversations with people. Um, I think it's it's definitely, that's, it's a difficult one to to maintain the conversation style as you scale. Um, and one thing that helps is is how 
you know, technology helps a lot with all of this. So the fact that I'm still, you know, I still handle all of this side of things myself and I'm getting, I, you know, I'll get Facebook messages come through directly on my phone. And so it's really easy for me to immediately answer customers. Um, you have to kind of accept that you'll, you'll be always on forever, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I don't actually mind very much. I think if you, if you really like your job, it doesn't bother you quite as much as it used to <laughs> before. Um, but it's, I mean, that, that's part of it. I think at the moment it's manageable and I probably, I could probably do have twice as many customer queries as I, a day as I do now, but beyond that point, um, I think it's a case of just bringing more like-minded people into the company who can have that same really just normal personal conversation with customers. A lot of people go down the, the, the you know, they'll, they'll outsource it and they'll, they'll create scripts and, you know, they decide, okay, this is what our corporate language is and this is how we should sound. My approach generally is just, you know, hire normal people who sound like normal people and bring me <laughs> like the, the problems. Um, I mean, I think I think it'll be it'll be an interesting process of finding those people and, and building out that team. But I think that's you know how I feel about it. And and then I think it's about having quite a close knit team as well where you share that feedback. So if somebody says to you, you know, there was a, if there's some issue with the product or something pops up like that, you want to be really quick and really responsive to spread that information within your team and make sure that we find a solution quickly and that, you know, we can, it doesn't happen again. Um, Definitely. It's, I guess it's, it's, it's all about culture. When you make the right hires and people who are kind of aligned with your why that really understand why your business exists, who you're there to serve, why you're there to serve them. Um, you, I guess the micromanaging kind of falls away. It's funny because this was my challenge and I'm kind of answering it for myself. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. (laughs) and it's really interesting. I love businesses like yours because it's such a great example of how you're using that kind of high touch approach to allow that kind of two way conversation, which means that your your customers can kind of fuel your growth. And it's really interesting because I did a um, a talk at um, the Women in Strategy Summit here in New York at the start of the year. And that was what they wanted to talk to me about because everything that I've done, I wish that I could say that it was this kind of master plan, this kind of big strategy, but everything that we launched, whether it was a podcast or a workshop or a course or anything has just been asking our audience, like, how can we continue to serve you? Like, what are you struggling with? Um, And we've created something based on that. So that's why it's gone well, because it's not this kind of top down. We want to launch this this year. So we're going to come out with this with this project. Um, And it seems like the same principle applies with you. You've kind of used that customer research to fuel the next kind of product line or the next offering. Am I right in saying that? Basically, I had um, just before I started the business, I was um, at South by Southwest in Austin and went to go and see the first person I saw was um, Emily Weiss, the founder of Glossier. And this was what she was talking about. They had created a, um, a facial cleanser entirely based on kind of querying their customers and finding out what problems people had with the cleansers they currently owned. Um, and they really, you know, they they took it to the extreme where you know, the whole process started with their customers. Their customers followed the journey throughout the entire product. And then they ended up with this really fantastic product at the end of it. And I thought, you know, it's amazing. It's just, it's so fantastic how much 
this this kind of two-way communication how far it can take you you know that you're you're able to you're able to use it to get your message out there but how much you can get back from it as well um so i mean it's pretty exciting and i think one thing that's it you need to be able to do which isn't always easy is the ability to 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 throw away your preconceptions. And so sometimes you might have the idea that you're going to test everything and be really open to something not working, but actually you really love an idea and you're quite, you're quite wedded to it. What if I told you that I have a group of like-minded women to connect you with who are at a similar stage of business, but with different strengths and challenges. Women who are ambitious and ready to do hard work just like you, who you could crowdsource your ideas with and get constructive feedback in a safe, confidential space. What if I told you that you could tap into this group, not only for support and accountability, but for insights into strategies that are working and in real time? That's what the TLE Accountability Circle is all about. It's a monthly membership community for entrepreneurs who want to learn from like-minded founders and be held accountable for taking steps to realise their goals. Take your business and impact to the next level and join us in this transformative group. Apply today via the link in the show notes. So I think that's, you know, that's quite a good exercise and you've got to teach yourself to be wrong and to, to have your customers tell you, actually, no, nobody likes this. <laughs> you, know? you have to let it go. Uh, and it's quite a good, a good exercise in kind of you know, letting go of your ego in the whole process as well. Oh my God, it is. I feel like just running a business generally is like the ultimate ego check. Exactly. Um, you have to get okay with things not going right. Like I, it's like a running joke in our team that we have like mastered the art of the pivot. Yeah. Um, because yeah, we'll have this grand idea, we'll do it. And I guess it's that whole process of losing our um, the focus on the outcome and just being curious and being willing to kind of test things in a small scale, seeing how people respond and looking at the the negative feedback as much as you do the positive and using that as the kind of fuel to to grow your business and get better and better. But I think it's so, we can get so afraid of that rejection or um, things not going right that we just don't even try, which makes the you know the growth process a lot a lot slower as they say that the best entrepreneurs they fail a lot but they fail fast yeah and I think that you know you do a lot at the beginning well throughout the process you're putting a lot of yourself and your own personality into it and even just the case of you know you launch something and you're posting about it on your own personal Facebook and Instagram and you're telling everyone and you're proud of it and then you know, a month later, you have to go to the pub and tell everyone that <laughs> it hasn't really worked. And I think it's it's hard at the beginning. It gets so much easier as you go along because you realise it's you have all these other things that you're proud of that, that make up for it completely. Um, but it's it's definitely a kind of key thing to learn, I think. You're so right. We did a workshop at the start of the year. And um, one of the things that came up a lot from the women in the group was that, yeah, it was like, the the pressure of like friends and family like once they'd started their businesses you know social settings it'd always be like oh so how's that business going along and in you know on the surface that just seems like such a simple question but because you're under all of this pressure already it just feels so loaded just that question yes I had so we the the all of our all of our stock and the fulfillment side of the business and um, you know, most of the business is run out of West Sussex. 
Um, and I have a flat in London and I go between the two. Uh, and what was interesting is the whole time, the first year of the business, I was in Sussex full time. And I realized that that was just such a, a, a really great thing to do because I wasn't seeing my friends nearly as much. Um, you know, most I grew up in London and most of my friends are in London. And then I was able to, to come to London once a month and actually have a bit of an update for them um, and not have to be saying every day. <laughs> right at the beginning, there's not a lot to say. You know, it takes a while before there's any kind of momentum. And, you know, you don't want to be saying, oh, well, today I wrote <laughs> And, uh, you know, so it's it's a slow it's a slow process at the beginning. And to an extent, being able to protect yourself from that peer, peer pressure side of it was 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 quite valuable for me, at least. Oh, my God. It's so true. I had the same experience, like coming to New York. Um, it was almost it was so nice because it was like I could just start from scratch. I could yeah. kind of go into my little hole and be like a little worker bee and create without all of that pressure. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Totally. So right now, there's so much of an emphasis on, you know, startups going down the VC funding track. And it's something that comes up in a lot of our conversations here on the podcast. But I know that you haven't ruled out getting um, private funding, but you are a big believer in kind of getting started. So what have been some of the the pros and cons of going that route? I think that, I mean, it's, it was, you know, I had a little bit of money right at the beginning to play with from savings from previous jobs and things. And so, you know, just, you know, it, it does need, you know, you can't do it from nothing because you do need to pay for that kind of initial uh, load of stock and things. So, you know, there's, that's worth taking into account. Um, but for me, what it did is it meant that you've just got so much freedom right at the beginning. Uh, you're not answering to anyone you can test, you can fail, you can scale up certain elements. You know, you you it's completely up to you to 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 really see what's working and let the data speak for itself without having too many um, different stakeholders involved. Uh, it worked well in this context because the core fundamentals of the business are fairly simple. Um, you know, we were revenue positive quite early, uh, so there was money to 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 keep going and to grow and to to expand the product line um i think i personally like that way of doing it a lot uh, certainly until you're at the point where vcs kind of have a lot that you know you reach a point later later down the road where they have a lot more to offer than just the funding where you know there you you actually really need some guidance and some uh Smart at a, yeah um you know where it would actually be really great to have some of these people on the board or you know those those kind of elements um would be really valuable i think one thing that's really overlooked generally for, for these kind of startups i think if you're you know you're starting some app that's not going to have any revenue for 10 years then obviously you need to go down the vc road but if you're certainly in e-commerce and if you think that you can generate revenue quite quickly um i think that, that building a company off debt is is overlooked a lot so I mean, you, we, we've been growing gradually at 20% month on month, which enables us to, to continue fueling our growth. But obviously, we hit moments where you suddenly got to you know, pay a lot for stock in one big go. Um, and it's interesting to kind of start looking at the different, the different options of borrowing that are out there. Um, there's, 
One thing I've really liked was, uh, so PayPal's working capital scheme is kind of interesting. So they, I would say probably about a third of our customers pay by using PayPal. So that's a third of our revenue that, that runs through our PayPal account. Um, and so obviously from PayPal's perspective, they can see, they've been able to see the growth, they've been able to see you know, what's coming in, what's going out, and they can uh, give you very, basically a very, for them it's a very low risk loan uh, so they will lend you a certain amount of money. What they do is they take that money back straight out of each sale that comes in. So oh. I, think it, I think it's about you can you can kind of play around with it and, and work out different rates and things like that. But in our case, we borrowed some money and we were paying it back at 15 percent. So every sale that came in, we gave 15 percent of that revenue straight back to PayPal. Oh, and that's actually a great idea. It takes the pressure off. It's just yeah, like it's automatically going. Yeah, you kind of don't really notice it happening. And then there's, uh, and then it's it's a no interest loan. So they just provide you with a fixed fee for that loan. So, you know, you pay it back. It doesn't matter if, if for whatever reason revenue was to slow down, um, it, you know, it wouldn't, you could, you could pay it back over a really long period of time with no increased interest. So, I mean, I think there was something to give you a bit of a, a an idea of numbers. We did a small loan recently for I think it was about six grand and it was, the fee was about 250 quid. So it, you know, it's a, it's a really feasible way of continuing to, to fill any little holes in your cash flow um, and, and to continue growing at a gradual process like that. I think, you know, when you're, when you're borrowing 10 grand here or 10 grand there, it's, it's doable. I think VCs come in and play a really important role when you suddenly need, you know, half a million, um, which you can't, you know, which would be a real different thing to do um, in this kind of debt-based model. Yeah. So, so for me, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it, that, that you, can, you can get the business to a certain stage, uh, you know, through your in-revenue and through these kind of little injections of capital, um, and that then VCs is potentially something for a little bit further down the road. Okay. I Just as you're, as you're talking, I'm getting lots of questions popping up because – there's a lot of emphasis at the moment, especially with direct-to-consumer businesses, about scaling your businesses with Facebook ads. We all know them. We love them. It's great. Um, but I wonder sometimes how loyal those customers are because you've seen bigger companies who will spend insane amounts on Facebook ads, but their churn is so high. Yeah. You know, and the lifetime value of their customers is very high. So it's not always about who has the most budget wins no i think it's it's a tricky balance between you know using facebook and instagram for for custom acquisition but then you know you that doesn't mean just because you're bringing new customers in doesn't mean that you can suddenly uh you know you have to you have to make sure you're not neglecting the, these new customers and so i mean we do something for instance um with every every first time order the customer will, will receive a 20% discount code to use towards their second order. Um, Good one. It's like, you know, we, we get these new customers in. We don't know that much about them. They probably haven't been following us for a long time on Instagram. You know, they're kind of fairly new to the brand. But then it's a case of from that point onwards, really getting them to understand what we're about and trying to get them to come back and, you know, start building up a little bit of a collection of our products. And, uh, you know, I think in everything, in your packaging, Everything from the point of that sale onwards, you kind of really want them to to feel like they identify with you as a brand. Um, 
So it's it's an interesting one because I mean we have customers that you know we can see from the data that they have been on you know they'll they'll make their first order and we can see that they've been onto the website 25 times over the course of the last five months. Oh wow! You know they they've been following us on Instagram for a year and kind of arming and ahhing about what to get or maybe it's not exactly the right time. You know they don't need bedding at that time or whatever it is. Um, but so that's a really really different kind of customer compared to somebody who received an ad today and purchased today. Yeah. So you kind of constantly want to make sure that you're 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 making sure that they all feel like they understand the brand, that they all uh, you know, kind of get to know us well, despite how long they've been kind of dealing with us. So how are you doing that? Once someone has made their first initial purchase, how are you still kind of continuing to delight them? And, you know, let's be real, increasing your lifetime value of that customer beyond incentivizing them with discounts. So I think you can you can still do that um, from a paid media perspective. So kind of having, uh, you know, other other campaigns that run on social that are that are a little bit more content based and a little bit more. Uh, kind of storytelling um, for our existing customers. So, you know, there's there's certain campaigns that wouldn't make sense to somebody who had never heard of the brand, but who, you know, they might be interested to to you know see see a different kind of product. You know, to hear more about our pajamas launch or to you know to engage with us in a different way once they're already one of our customers. So it's 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 kind of segmenting our our customer base and working out what might make sense to them at different times. The kind of the, the tech and the, the you know the, the digital tools available now changed the nature of business and that you know right now I'm in New York um, and I've got you know a bunch of meetings here this week but then you know I can travel around really easily and I can manage the business from my phone from wherever I am and as long as you know you've got that the fulfillment side of it is obviously you know fairly solid and needs to you know needs to be a kind of brick and mortar thing. Um, but other than that, I love that, you know, you can work, bring in the right freelancers at the right time, uh, you know, do a lot of things yourself, kind of keep it really lean and then work out as you go. I mean, for us, it's been a year and a half and and I still haven't hired a first my first full time employee um, other than my mother. Um, so, so and I'm still I'm still not even sure exactly what that person should should be, you know, exactly where where the biggest pain point is, what, you know, what area I need the most support with because at the moment it's kind of you know you're spinning all of these different plates and just working out you know which which one you need some more help with but then you've got this enormous network now that you can tap into a freelance help um, who are really really skilled um, and you know they're the, the a little bit more flexible because at the moment you know this I might need certain skills for a few weeks and then not necessarily have anything full-time for them beyond that so it's been really helpful to be able to kind of you know do this as a gradual process and bring people in as and when they're needed totally and I guess also as startups we get to access amazing freelancers with incredible expertise at a rate that you know we may not have been able to afford if we were to have them full-time exactly yeah also I always worry that you know if I was to bring somebody on board full-time you know, there's a huge burden of responsibility of making sure that you're going to have a long-term opportunity for them and that you know it's going to be stable and you're going to have enough continued work for them. Um, and I think you've got to be really sure before 
you take on that responsibility of somebody else's livelihood. Totally. It's funny because that was something that I was always afraid of um, before bringing someone on permanently. But in doing so, it completely made me raise my game. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know, uh, you know, where I would have been like, oh, mates rates or, oh, you know, don't want to push the boat here. Now I'm like, I'm not advocating for myself. I find it so much easier to advocate for somebody else than I do for myself. So yeah, having that responsibility, I was like, yeah. Yeah, I get that. That's a nice way of looking at it. No, completely. Um, okay, so we spoke a little bit about Facebook ads as, and social medias as kind of some of the things that have been driving the growth. 20% growth month on month is incredible. What are some of the other things that you kind of put that success down to? So I would say, um, yeah, we, we spoke a little bit about influencer marketing, um, which is a big part of what we do and a great way of kind of just reaching totally new customer bases. Um, then, I mean, the, the growth in the product offering has helped a lot as well. Uh, so we kind of, for instance, like right at the beginning, we were just selling we were just selling duvet covers and pillowcases. As soon as we started bringing in sheets and suddenly we had bundled products, our average order value really shot up. And so that was, you know, really helped kind of cont- that continued revenue growth. Um, so that was great. One thing that I didn't necessarily, and this is a little embarrassing because before starting Piglet, almost all of my my career previously was in PR. And but I was always doing PR for really big brands. Um, and, you know, if you, so, for instance, I was doing some work. I used to do the PR for Ray-Ban in the Middle East. And, you know, if you get if you get a piece of coverage for Ray-Ban, you don't necessarily know exactly, you know, you can't quantify the impact that that has on sales. So I've always probably underplayed the, the importance of PR until launching Piglet. And then uh, the PR agency uh, that we work with, they're called Bacchus, and they are just amazing and had such, such a huge impact on our business. Um, and so every, you know, they get fantastic bits of coverage and every time they do, you know, it's a huge, you know, huge spike in sales. Um, so that's been, that's been a really important kind of more important than I anticipated marketing strategy. How did you find letting that go, especially as PR was your expertise? That's what you've been doing for years. How did you find like trusting somebody else to do that side? I think one thing was, I think, you know, immediately the first time I met with them, we sat down and had coffee and they understood the brand 100 percent. And so I felt completely trusting letting them go out and, and you know, speak to press on my behalf uh, because I knew that they completely understood it. And still, you know, I'll meet up with them for a meeting and they'll come and they'll say, you know, they use the product, they use the product themselves, they sleep in the pajamas, they use the bedding and uh, you know, they said to me the other day, they said, oh, have you thought about, we think you should do stripey pajamas, but we think you should do contrasting piping. And I thought, yeah, you're, you're completely <laughs> right. I mean, they're coming to me with product suggestions and they're like, they feel completely like a, like a internal part of the team. Um, so I think, you know, you know, when it's the right fit uh, and everything that they do is great. You know, they're, their writing is great I can you know they they have all the right press contacts I before launching Piglet I was um, working in the Middle East for a long time so I'd kind of gotten out of the whole London PR scene so I didn't really know any of the right people anyway Um, so it was really helpful to be able to tap into their network 
And I think also a key thing as any founder is just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should be doing it. So a lot of people always say to me, oh, my God, Naomi, what are you writing at the moment? And I'm like, I haven't written anything in the last year and a half, actually. Um, But they think because my background is as a journalist, that's what I'm doing in the business. And you quickly realize, like we've said, there's so many moving parts. We constantly have to ask ourselves, what is how can we be add the biggest contribution to this business? And I had to realize again, ego trip, um, <laughs> that as much as yes, I'm a writer, there are so many people that could do it as well or you know far better than I could. Um, so I can give that over to somebody else and kind of add more value to the business in different ways. Yeah, I had that with uh, for the first um, up close to a year, I was doing all the photography myself. Um, and you get so into it and you start, <laughs> you know, I started thinking I was a bit rubbish at the beginning and then it started getting a bit better and I started getting a bit more confident and then um, one of my best friends is a incredibly talented photographer James Harvey Kelly and he came on board and shot our pajama campaign and it was such a sort of wake-up call of oh yeah that's really good photography <laughs> and you suddenly realize oh okay this could all be you could up the up your game so much um and so we got our we got our our product shots redone and and now you know I don't think I would do very much of the photography myself other than just for kind of bits and pieces for social media how do you how do you decide things like that um to allocate resource to because I know a lot of people listening will know that yes if they got a great photographer to shoot their assets it will take the branding up a notch someone to help with social but it can be really scary in the beginning because you're even though you know you can see this growth there is this kind of scarcity mindset that you don't know the next time that that money is going to come in so how do you make those decisions when you're making those big in financial investments I think for me it did it took at least six months of of running the business and seeing that consistent growth before, you know, I I had faith that the sales were going to continue coming in. You know, I still get moments where it'll be a really, you know, slow sales day. And I think, oh, that's it. That was the end of it. Yeah. And I think you're always going to have these moments of of nervousness. Um, But I do think it's a, it's a, it's a feeling that you get as the more confidence you have in the business, uh, the more consistent it feels. Um, and you start to understand what you can afford today, but also what you're going to be able to afford in a month, two months, you know, one year. And I think it's it's always finding that balance between uh, kind of what we were discussing previously about starting really lean and being prepared to pivot and, you know, not investing too much right at the beginning, but, you know, focusing more on experimentation. But then also you reach a point where, the time has come that you need to start taking, you know, making serious investment. And you think, I think if you're, if you're growing quite fast, it's also just a realization of, you know, if we're taking, if you're doing new product shots today, those are product, those are, you know, you might be using them in, in six months or a year, you might still be using those same assets yes. and you've got to start thinking what, you know, the size of the business then, you know, in a year, I really can't get away with having shoddy photography. So you're kind of, constantly planning for where you're going to be fairly soon and it's the same when it comes to things like uh you know we've been focusing more on the creative side of the conversation but I mean there's a lot of very practical things like you know how much warehousing space should you take on and and things like that and 
you know, it's really tempting to always have just exactly what you need. But as the business grows really fast, you've got to be anticipating, you know, you can't be moving warehouse every month. So you've got to be anticipating, you know, how much stock am I going to be sitting on in, in six months? And how much room am I going to need in order to fulfill all of these orders and how much fulfillment staff and things like that. So I think one thing that's been that's helped a lot with our business is that actually that growth has been really steady, um, which has helped with forecasting. So, I mean, I don't know, you know, you can't be sure what's going to happen over the next six months, but if over the last year, it's really been a very steady 20% month on month, we can kind of have a fairly clear idea of what the business looks like in another six months. Um, and then you've got to, you know, you've got to start believing that and taking <laughs> taking the risks that you need to take based on 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 that on that forecast. Oh my God, so so true. And it just makes me think of a piece of advice that one of my mentors gave me. She was like, you you know, as entrepreneurs, you're always focused on growth. But yes, if your clients were to double tomorrow, do you actually have the infrastructure in your business to support those clients? Yeah. So it is if. Even at a 20% growth every month, you need to, you know, that's 40%, 60% in three months' time. We, what are you doing now that's setting your business up for success when those new customers are there? Um, so, yeah, it's like this constant um, double-pronged approach. But thank you so much. There's so many amazing nuggets of wisdom and takeaways for this episode. I just want to wrap up by... If you could just share some of the biggest lessons that you've learned over the last year and a half that you think anyone listening who is on a similar kind of trajectory should know. I would say, I mean, probably when I think about why this business has worked um, or is, you know, it's starting to work quite nicely, is um, if it comes to e-commerce, this is not the most inspiring advice, but really practical advice. Things that have really paid off for us were, you know, finding a product category that isn't too busy, you know, hasn't got too much competition, finding a little niche within that. So for us, that was bedding, but then narrowing down into linen bedding. Um, then it's, you know, making sure that your core business fundamentals are strong. So in our case, that was uh, making sure that our product markup was was healthy, you know, that you can you can source your product at a reasonable cost and sell it at a, at a cost that, you know, you, you can run the business off. Um, making sure um, that your average order value is fairly high. I think, I think it would be really tricky now to run a kind of small niche Instagrammy business if you were selling something of a really low value just because the cost to acquire a customer would be, you know, would be too high um, and you wouldn't make it back fast enough in, in, in sales. Um, so some of those kind of, you know, just making sure and making sure that your market size is big enough. So it kind of really comes down to those like basic business fundamentals that I think it's very easy to get carried away with the with the creative side and with all the, you know, the branding and all the really fun bits and the website design and to, to slightly overlook some of those. Whereas I think you've got to always make sure that you're coming back to those those core metrics. So, so true. I'm all about the, the nuts and bolts. So thank you so much for that. Finally, how can people connect with you and learn more about the brand? Yeah, so we're um, everywhere on social, uh, Piglet in bed. Um, so chat to us on Instagram or feel free to drop me a message or an email. I'm always happy to chat. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So that's it for this week's episode of the Lifestyle Edit podcast. 
You can download more episodes of this podcast and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you enjoyed what you heard, we would love a review or recommendation. It's the number one way for us to share these stories and insights with as many creative female entrepreneurs as possible. And don't forget, all the information on how to join the TLE community is in the show notes or simply head to thelifestyleedit.com to sign up.